God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Our Holy Father, we thank you today that you rule sovereignly in the affairs of men and nations that the troubles that this world have, you have actually predicted and warned us of. You told us that when these things take place, we are not to fear, for they must happen before your Son comes. We pray today for the people in France. We know that only about 1% acknowledge Jesus as Lord. 80% have never held a Bible in their hand, not because they're not there, but because they're not interested. Oh God, that you would move upon that nation. We pray for Drew's parents. We pray for Dan, the pastor of the church there, that you would bless him and strengthen him for the work that you've given him to do. We pray for all the evangelical born-again pastors and youth ministries across that nation, that this would be a time of awakening, that people's hearts would be stirred, and that they would see how fragile life is. May we see how fragile life is. May we recognize that we have turned from you, that we are a wicked nation and our sins pile before you. Oh God, have mercy on us. May judgment begin with your own people. May it begin with us. Oh God, as we open the word today, open our hearts to its truthfulness. Help us have eyes to see what is said here, that this is not what you have simply said, but these things you wrote for those who would live at the end of the ages for our instruction. So, Father, I pray and I ask that you would be merciful to me, that you would help me, that you would fill me, that you would empower me and use me. I pray for each person in every seat here and in Bluffton, Hilton Head, that you would stir every heart, Believer and unbeliever alike, that Jesus be honored, and we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning, turn to the prophet Daniel chapter 5. Last week we studied Daniel 4, the marvelous conversion of Nebuchadnezzar who turned from his sin to the living God. And he was wondrously converted, and someday we're going to meet him in heaven. But when we come to Daniel 5, We really come to a study in contrast. It's the historical account of a king who walked away from God, who walked away from what he knew to be true, and this morning he's in hell. Belshazzar had a disastrous party where he saw the handwriting on the wall. And I believe that the historical record found here in the fifth chapter is a message that needs to be heeded by modern America. You cannot miss the connection between what took place in Babylon centuries ago and what is happening today in our great country. We are known for our luxury, for our lust, for our licentiousness. And as you read this chapter of Scripture, God judged Babylon, and we know a day is coming when God will judge all the nations of the world, and so we would do well to heed the message. Now, this is a narrative portion of Scripture, 
And really, to appreciate it, you need to deal with it as a whole. So we're going to do the whole chapter. So fasten your pew belts, get ready. I'm going to begin by reading at least the first 12 verses so you have a flavor of where we're headed, all right? Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the finger of a man's hand, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand. That did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, before we dig into the finer details of the passage, let me just set its context. If you've been with us and you know the book of Daniel divides into two halves, chapters 1 through 6 are historical. The focus concerns Daniel and his friends. Chapters 7 through 12 are largely prophecy. It's prophetical. And it deals with Daniel and his people's future. Here in the first half, you can see we open the book as we saw Daniel and his friends deported from Jerusalem to Babylon when they were just young teenagers. We came into the second chapter, the one little bit of prophecy in this section, where we saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 1 through 6 is largely historical with a little bit of prophecy. 7 through 12 is all prophecy with just a little bit of history in it. So we saw this dream that was an outline of the nation's the Gentile nations and God's plans for them. Then we saw in the third chapter, the king not satisfied with his future. He built that great statue. All who were wise were supposed to bow down and worship it, but there were three who were truly wise and they refused and we saw the furnace of fire. Then in chapter four, if you were here last time, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's pride. We saw how God dealt with him in his pride and how God gloriously converted him. And then next week, we will come to the lion's den. 
Now, please understand, between chapters 4 and 5, there's a period of time, 23 years to be precise. You can study the chronology of the book. That's clear, and not just does the book reveal it, but secular history reveals it as well. And so there's a large block of time between these two chapters. Remember, in the opening chapter, we met Daniel when he was just a teenager. And when we come next week to the sixth chapter, we will see him really as an elderly man. He's between 85 and maybe 90 years of age. Here's a slide of the kings that will be helpful for you to see. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, when he initially came to attack Jerusalem, came as General Nebuchadnezzar. His father, uh, Nabopolazar, was the king. And while he was sieging Jerusalem, he discovered his daddy died. So he took some hostages, made an arrangement, went back to Babylon. He's going to come back and attack it fully. But he becomes the king. King Nebuchadnezzar rules for quite a period of time, 43 years to be precise. At the end of his rule, you find this man, Evil Merodach. That's his son. He's not mentioned in the book of Daniel, but he is mentioned in two books in the Bible, in 2 Kings along with the prophet Jeremiah. Unlike his father who ruled 43 years, he rules only two years. He's assassinated by his brother. It's misspelled here, but it should be Nergal Lorazer. And Nergal Lorazer is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39. Um, but then uh, there's some other short reigns, uh, reigns, and then we eventually come to Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus, but he's also his grandson, as we will see. Nabonidus was his son-in-law, and his, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, will take his place. Now, Nabonidus is an interesting man. We know a lot about Nabonidus from a number of sources, not only Babylonian cuneiform, but there was a very famous historian of the day named Bronsias, a Greek historian, whom Josephus repeatedly quotes as a source. We discover that Nabonidus didn't really like staying at home. He was a warrior king of sorts, and so he would be out fighting the enemies of Babylon. And at this time, the Medes and the Persians were a growing force. But he also was very interested in a number of building projects. And so he was not one to stay home, and so he appointed his son as a co-regent. And his son's name, of course, is mentioned here in the text. It's Belshazzar. Now, what's kind of interesting is that Belshazzar is not mentioned outside of the book of Daniel, where all these other kings are. And so the skeptics who want to attack Daniel, and if you remember, the book of Daniel is the second most attacked book in the Bible, followed after Genesis. So I told you, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything in the Bible. But men want to make Genesis 1-1 ridiculous. They want to make it absurd that you're an ignoramus. I heard one of the uh, uh, commentators on one of the major news agencies commenting on one of the men running for president. And because he believed in creation, he said he didn't stand a chance. How could you be an intelligent person and believe in a God who created See, that's why Genesis 1.1 is repeatedly attacked. So nonetheless, Belshazzar's name is not found or was not found. And so this was another excuse to attack the book of Daniel. And there was a German theologian in the early 1850s by the name of Ferdinand Herzig who said, well, here's another proof that Daniel was not written by Daniel. 
It's another proof that this book was written around 165 B.C. instead of in the 6th century B.C. And one of the reasons they don't like Daniel is because of its prophetic nature. It is incredibly precise. We are going to read, when we come to the ninth chapter, one of the most profound, precise, particular prophecies in all of the Bible. It will absolutely blow your mind. But look, you can read all the background information and all the commentaries and authorship, but it's very, very simple. Jesus referred to Daniel not as Daniel the historian, but in Matthew 24, 15 as Daniel the prophet, and that settles it for me. In either case, in 1854, a British archaeologist by the name of uh, J.G. Taylor, he uncovered this, what's called a steel. On it are 60 lines of Babylonian writing, and of course, mentioned in there is this son and co-regent by the name of Belshazzar. Now, by the time chapter 5 opens, his daddy is dead. And so he is properly called, here in the opening verse, the king. Now, that's the background. With that said, let's dig into the finer points of the text. If you read the chapter several times, and I always do, before I begin to expound it carefully... I discovered that it really unfolds like a three-act play, and so I've given you an outline in three points. The first concerns the king's decadence, the king's decadence, and we find here in the opening verse his foolishness, the foolishness that he displays. Notice, if you will now, verse 1, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. This was a night of decadence, it was a night of debauchery, it was a a night of dissipation, and he has with him a thousand of his nobles, along the Bible says with his wives and his concubines. Now, archaeologists have uncovered a number of banquet halls in ancient Babylon, one that would seat 10,000, and archaeologists have confirmed that this very banquet hall that Belshazzar met in that night that would seat approximately 2,000, that they have actually uncovered it. In fact, Saddam Hussein restored this particular banquet hall. So what I'm trying to say, it was not uncommon for them to throw these big bashes. And what we find here is a king who's not worried, who seemingly has no fear. He believes his city is impregnable. He had spent, along with prior kings, huge sums of money to defend the city. Here's a picture of the inner walls. I told you last time the outer wall was 17 miles long. It was 387 feet high. It was 87 feet thick. It was wide enough to run four chariots side by side, and they would literally have chariot races around the outer wall. Uh, It also had 100 towers built around it for defensive purposes. Then there was the inner wall that is pictured here that was 250 feet tall. And as you can see, and this becomes important to understanding how this city was sieged, the Euphrates River came right through that particular wall. Now, in addition to the fact that they had plenty of water in case the city was sieged, and this is important, and if you've ever been to some of the ancient biblical sites, you realize when a siege takes place, two things are critical. One is food, the second is water. Had plenty of water. Babylonian cuneiform said that they had 20 years of food apart from what they could grow on the inside. And so they thought no one could ever conquer us. And in many ways... Belshazzar is like modern Americans. He believed he was absolutely secure. Verse 2 begins, when Belshazzar tasted the wine. 
Now, this word tasted in the original Aramaic or in my Hebrew Bible, it carries more than the idea of a transfer of flavor. If you read commentaries and you have heard this text preached before, you will repeatedly hear pastors talk about the big drunken party that took place here. Yet there's no mention anywhere of anyone being drunk in the entire chapter. So how did they come with that? Because the Hebrew word, like the Aramaic word for taste, literally speaks not just of a transfer of flavor, but the tasting of its effects. And so in many of your newer translations, if you have the Net Bible this morning, it says, while under the influence of the wine, and that's the thought behind the Hebrew and the Aramaic, in modern vernacular, this man was high. And God gives us this detail in verse 2 because he wants us to understand the relationship between the tasting, uh, drinking to get high, along with the command that follows. Look further into verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. This king is emboldened as he's drunk. He's high on alcohol, so he orders these utensils that Nebuchadnezzar, 65 years earlier, had brought from Jerusalem and set in his temple, and he wants to drink from them. Now, hold your finger here for just a moment. You're in Daniel. Go to the book of Proverbs, if you will, chapter 20. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. That's about dead center. And right after Psalms, there's the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, one for every day of the month. Turn to the 20th chapter of Proverbs for just a moment because I want you to see that what Belshazzar was doing was very foolish because he was using intoxicating alcohol. He was using strong drink, and it has a way of blurring someone's judgment. Proverbs 20, the opening verse says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Belshazzar was anything but wise. Daniel 5 is really an illustration of Proverbs chapter 20 in verse 1. Because strong drink has a way of blurring your sense of judgment. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Now drop down to verse 29 of uh, chapter 23 for just a moment. Chapter 23. And listen to what the writer says. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Some of you were brought up in a home where your dad or your mom were drunks. And you grew up in a home where there was a lot of sorrow. You saw maybe your dad beat your mother. Maybe your father did things to you that he would never otherwise ever do had he not been drunk on wine. That's what alcohol does. It destroys lives. In fact, the King James translates Proverbs 20 and verse 1 a little bit different. It says, whoever is deceived, not whoever is intoxicated, but whoever is deceived by strong drink is not wise. And actually, there's a dual nuance to the Hebrew word. It speaks of deception that comes through intoxication. So if you're doing a word-for-word correspondence, you have to choose one. The NAS went with intoxicated. The King James went with deceived. But they're both good because wine is the great deceiver. 
Strong drink deceives people. And the alcohol industry is trying to deceive you that there's nothing wrong with their products, that alcohol is a great thing. Now look at verse 31 of this chapter. Do not look on the wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, he's talking about fermented wine. When it sparkles, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Alcohol promises everything just like the devil, the serpent in Eden promised Adam and Eve so much. But in the end, it's like a poisonous snake. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. People who get high will say strange things they would never say had they not been drunk. Verse 34, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mass. It's a description, one, of someone who's seasick. So the drunk driver is dizzy. He's over the line back and forth. He is also stupid. He is like one on the top of a mast. Someone who is drunk will do dumb things. We just saw last week of that drunk man on that cruise ship holding on to the edge of the ship until he dropped off the edge, and now he's dead. And so that's what drunks do. They struck me, verse 35, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I shall seek another drink. I will seek another drink. That's what the drunkard does. He wakes up. He doesn't know how he got the bruises he got. (laughs) <laughs> on our honeymoon night, I put my hand, or my, our second night, not our honeymoon night, I put my hand through a window. I was trying to uh, open a window on this house we had rented, and the sill was rotted, and my finger got caught. It was just a small cut, but it was enough where I needed some stitches. And we went, we drove, my wife, their wife drove me 28 miles to the emergency room. And there were so many drunks in there that night. Guys all beat up, black and blue, bleeding, arrogant, screaming at the nurses and doctors trying to help them. The strange thing is they wake up the next morning and they say, give me another drink. That's the horror of alcohol. First a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink ultimately takes the man. It has a way of distorting life. This king was so stupid. He was so unwise. He was unlike King Lemuel's mother who gave him sound advice in Proverbs 31. There she said, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And understand, strong drink does not refer to the distilled alcohols that come centuries after the Bible is completed. Some say they come in the 7th century. Most argue they come in the 16th century. One expert said, and I quote, the 16th century created it, the 17th century consolidated it, the 18th century popularized it. So when we're talking about strong drink in the Bible, we're not speaking of rum and whiskey and vodka and the things that came years later, centuries later. We're talking about naturally fermented beer and wine. And God said, don't use it. Why? Because it is addictive. The exception that God gives in Proverbs 31 is to the bitter, dying, despairing man. You can give it to him as a painkiller, much like you'd give morphine to a dying person as an act of mercy. Now, many times people have said to me, well, pastor, will drinking a beer send you to hell? Of course not. You can drink a beer. In fact, you can drink no alcohol your your whole life and die and go straight to hell. But 
God teaches that if you drink wine, if you drink beer, you're unwise. You're stupid. Understand, this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of obedience. This is not an issue of whether or not you go to heaven, justification. It's an issue of sanctification. It's an issue of spiritual growth. And it's really an issue of your own personal testimony. It's an issue of whether you're going to cause another brother to stumble. It's an issue of whether you're going to glorify God in the day that we live in. It's an issue of how wise you are. And really, it's an issue of how satisfied you are. Whether or not the living water of Jesus Christ is so able to so deeply satisfy your soul that you don't need a drink. You'd say, Pastor, I don't get drunk. I just like a drink. Well, I'm glad you don't get drunk because drunkenness is evil. But when are you drunk? When you're buzzed? You know, human law, it's all over the billboards lately. Buzz driving is drunk driving. I don't want to see how close I can get to sin without sinning. Our goal as believers ought to be how far we can get away from sin. And our standards certainly ought to be higher than than the world's standards. Now, that may sound old-fashioned to you. And you may think I'm just some ignorant evangelical. And you're welcome to think that. Though I went through a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program, I've done my work. I read the Bible in the original languages. I was just speaking to a Hebrew rabbi who's coming here in just a few weeks on a Wednesday night. You don't want to miss him, December the 2nd. And he reminded me that they always mix the wine with water. And that Orthodox Jews to this day continually do that. Listen, I want to tell you from experience, because I know the Reformed faith is on top, and I'm thankful for many of my Reformed brothers, but most of them are teaching that it's okay to drink, it's okay to have a glass of wine, it's okay to have a beer, and they are doing a great disservice to young evangelical Christians. And honestly, I have never met a Reformed pastor or any pastor of any stripe who has any power on their life who drink. None. And I don't know pastors that God is using in a mighty way. Look, our Reformed brothers are not leading the charge in terms of bringing people into the kingdom. Less than 5% of all the missionaries in the world today come from the Reformed faith. We would do wise. Dad, you would be wise to be a model to to the men in your home, to the women in your home to be a different kind of person. So here's a man who drank wine, Belshazzar, back here in the fifth chapter. And he he drinks it from God's holy vessels. Let's begin now in verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. What a foolish mistake. These vessels that 65 years earlier Nebuchadnezzar had brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. And by the way, he's referred to here as his father throughout the text, but it's actually his grandfather. Understand that in both Hebrew and Aramaic, there is no word for grandfather. It's the same word, and so context determines. And everyone knows, both secular critics as well as evangelical scholars, that Nebuchadnezzar is the grandfather. No one debates that or even makes a point out of it. But it's helpful for you to know that there is no word for grandfather. And if you ever see it in an English translation, it's an interpretation. It's not a translation. 
In either case, he gives orders here in the banquet hall for those sacred holy vessels to be brought in so they can drink from it. This is a power play. He's using and abusing God's holy objects that were used in the temple. Now, to put it crassly, if uh, you go to uh, work tomorrow and you discover that your computer and your desk and your chair and all the things in your desk are out in the hallway, what do you conclude? What's the inference? The inference is not that your furniture is out, but you are out. And here, in this man demeaning God's holy vessels, he was demeaning the holy God. That's the point of the text. He's not only a drunken slob, he is a profane slob who has no fear of the living God. He knew what had happened to his grandfather, as we will see in what follows, but he ignores it. He understood that the God of Israel had converted his grandfather, but he is mocking the God of Israel. He is basically saying, let's see what your God can do, O Israel, as he takes these objects. Now you say, how do you know that? How how do you know he's really challenging the God of Israel? Because of what unfolds. Fast forward down to verse, oh, go to verse 21, if you will. Verse 21, Daniel describes how Nebuchadnezzar's heart had become proud and lifted up, how he lived like an animal, and we read here, He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. And then Daniel gives an interpretive word. Look at verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. That tells me plainly he knew. He knew all about the one true God of Israel and what he had done to his grandfather and how his grandfather ended up humbling himself. And so by taking these vessels from the temple, he's thumbing his nose at the God of Israel. Look at verse 23. It's really Romans 1 lived out. No praise, no thanks. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. So back here in verse 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's incredibly stupid. Yet our society is not all that much different. We too as Americans are mocking holy things. Like never before in our media, in our music, in our printed page, on our websites, people are mocking God. Repeatedly they use His name in vain. They make fun of His pastors. They make fun of born-again Christians. In the Lord's Day, well, that's become a thing of the past. When I was a new believer in the early 70s, there was no activity on Sunday that was done that would be in conflict to the church. And when I first came as your pastor 25 years ago, at least if there was a gymnastic meet or something else, they waited until the afternoon until church was over. Doesn't matter anymore. Ball games, soccer games, football games, gymnastic meets. 
You hold it on any day you want because on Sunday, most people are off, so definitely hold it there. There's no regard for Christianity anymore in post-Christian America. And many of God's standards are being laughed at and mocked. People are making fun on television and the movies of what God calls holy. It's no longer sacred sex. It is now safe sex. And what is to be sacred between a man and a woman in covenant marriage is now a profane thing. And beyond that, there's a total perversion and reversal with gay marriage. Look, if people come here and they're living together, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad when gay people come here. Occasionally they come and they tell me they're homosexual. I'm glad they've come. Some have been saved and converted. I've married a few. Only God knows who they are, and I know who they are, and you don't know who they are, so don't ask me who they are, because they don't want you to know who they are. I'm glad for anyone who comes, but don't ask me to baptize you. Don't ask to become a member of Community Bible Church if you're profaning the living God. That's what this man was doing. He drank out of God's holy vessels. It would be like having the Lord's Supper and emptying out the grape juice and filling it with scotch and drinking a toast to the devil. No different. And this man doesn't really calculate the cost. He thinks he can pull this off. But sometimes God directly intervenes in human history to send a message. God doesn't burn down every Sodomite city. He did it just once. So you would know how he feels about the sin of sodomy. And God sometimes does something once so that we will learn a lesson forever. And so this man is basically saying, Hebrew God, stop me if you can, because my gods are greater. And so he throws a great feast, and we see not only the foolishness that he exhibits, we see the fear that he experiences. Look now, if you will, at verse 5, suddenly... The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, the commentators, the liberals, the critics say he was hallucinating, or some say the words were there all the time. No, this happened exactly as God said it happened. The handwriting grabbed this man. It changed him. And so to this day, we have the expression, the handwriting on the wall, the title of this morning's sermon. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't use the same method with Belshazzar that he did with his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a very private thing. What took place with this handwriting on the wall was a very public thing. It was there for everyone to see. Why? Because While Belshazzar led in the folly, others followed. It's very clear in the text that his nobles and his wives participated with him. Verse 4 says, they, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver. Now, don't miss the drama here in verse 6. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints were went slack, and his knees began knocking together. He's scared spitless. His face turns ashen. His thoughts within terrify him. And this guy who felt so strong earlier, his hip joints go slack. Uh, the Hebrew literally reads, the knots of his loins were loosed. It's a Hebrew idiom used to this day in Israel of someone who's lost control of his bladder. That's the thought. 
Here's the point. All the energy was drained out of this man, and his knees are literally knocking. This is one of five common expressions we use to this day, found again here in this chapter. So no doubt, he was sobered up immediately. Now let's ask a question. When he sees the handwriting on the wall, why does he interpret it the way he does? Why doesn't he see it maybe as a sign of blessing? that they were going to defeat the Medes and the Persians, and this was an answer from his gods. Why does he see the sign so negatively? Because he interprets it through his conscience. Just like Adam and Eve, when they hear God walking in the cool of the day, what do they do? They are fearful, they hide. Why? Because they interpret the event according to their conscience. When Herod beheads John the Baptist, And then later he hears of the mighty ministry of Jesus. He, through his conscience, interprets it to mean John the Baptist is raised from the dead because he's guilty. When a police officer pulls you over and the blue lights are on, do you think, well, maybe he's going to ask for a donation to the local police ball? No, that's not what you think. You know, you've been speeding, and so there's a little fear, and the heart begins to beat fast. Why? Because you're interpreting it through your conscience. Some people just have a knock on the door, and they are frightened because they interpret it in light of their conscience. That's what Belshazzar is doing. And so he does what many people do when they are desperate. They turn to religion. Look at verse 7. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. These guys are losers. We've already seen their track record. They're just like all false prophets. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. He obviously had not learned much from Nebuchadnezzar's experience. Their work in chapter 2 is a disaster. They repeat that disaster all over again in chapter 4, and they're going to bat a thousand on this night. Now, please notice, in his desperation, he makes three promises. First, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple. That's the royal color, a very expensive garment. It was a rank of royalty, usually only what kings wore. Second, he will have a necklace of gold around his neck. That's a mark of a person who's being highly honored. Not only is he given a rank of royalty, but he'll be given a mark of great honor. And third, he will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. By the way, this promise coincides with what secular history denied for 200 years, that the prophet Daniel was a fake because there was no king called Belshazzar. But there was. There was his daddy, there was Belshazzar, and this man is going to be third ruler in the kingdom. He's going to be given that honor. Now notice what happens after they hear the king's challenge. Then all the king's wise men came in But they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. They couldn't read it. Why? Because it's spiritual nature. And spiritual things belong to spiritual people. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot discern them because they're spiritually appraised. And so we read in verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler. And his nobles were perplexed. Now that's interesting. We're told in verse 6 that he was pale, he was alarmed, 
Now we're told his face grew even paler, and he was greatly alarmed. With all these experts there, they were unable to help him. It's like the man who goes to the psychiatrist, he comes out of the appointment, he says to his wife, I didn't know I had so many problems. You know, these guys are phonies. They're not, they're not for real. And this king's life is going down fast, and it's really the product of decisions he has made. Galatians says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will reap. And really, most of the problems we experience in this life are problems that we create. Most of the counseling a good pastor or counselor does who's a believer is they're just taking them to the Word of God and showing them where they deviated from Scripture. Because that's where the vast majority of all our problems come, from simply disobeying what God has said. And so it's very crystal clear here in the next scene as we move from the ignorance and the spiritual bankruptcy of these so-called wise men that God is going to use his servant Daniel. So beyond the king's decadence, there's the king's revelation. The king's revelation, if you're taking notes. The queen mother comes in. We know she's not the queen proper because we've already noted in verse 2 that his wives were already present. This woman comes in after uh, the writing appears. She's the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. She's the wife of Nabonidus. This is this guy's mother. This is Belshazzar's mother. And the context draws that out as well. Number one, she has firsthand experience of King Nebuchadnezzar. She's been around for a while. And so the historical record that is given to us here revolves around her prior knowledge that she has. So she comes in, and of course at this point, under this king's rule, Daniel doesn't have the same high position that he had had. Um, And again, when you read this, it speaks of Belshazzar's father. And in verse 22, it speaks of Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's son. And again, that's because there's no word for grandfather or grandson in Hebrew or in this Aramaic portion. Now notice uh, the context draws that out. Look first at the advice of the queen mother. We read in verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems, which tells me a lot about Daniel. We only have a portion of what he did for Nebuchadnezzar. He was very much involved. All these things were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. By the way, that's a wonderful testimony. Here's this old man in his mid to late 80s, and of course, this woman is not a believer, and so she's using pagan terminology to describe something supernatural, that the spirit of the holy gods is at work in this man. But he's in the twilight years of his life, But that's his reputation. Wouldn't that be a great thing? You know, some people get old and they get old and grumpy. I mean, they complain about everything. And it's really sad. Look, when I'm an old man, you say you're already an old man. Well, when I'm an older, older man, I want to be characterized as someone who is filled with the Spirit 
Daniel had, notice, an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, the explanation of enigmas. You know what an enigma is, a difficult concept or a phrase, something that's difficult to explain. And he had the ability to untangle hard thoughts. It says here, she mentions the solving of difficult problems. The Hebrew text literally reads, the solving of naughty problems. He has a way of untangling what some would call the untangable, if there is such a word, okay? And so, of course, God can do the same today. He can do the same through you. If you're a wise person, how do you get wisdom? When you obey what you know, you grow. When your mind is renewed with Holy Scripture and you begin to apply that Scripture, then you become wise like Daniel. Now, Daniel, sometime after Nebuchadnezzar, again, had been demoted. And there may come a time when this world won't want you around. For whatever reason, they didn't want Daniel around. They didn't want Daniel around when they're having their drunken party. And when the world, if you're truly a spirit-filled, born-again believer, they don't want you around. Why? Because they make you, you make them feel uncomfortable. You reflect to them God's holy standard. But many times, Many times I've learned in my life that when a crisis comes into their life, then they come looking for you because they know that somehow you are in touch with the living God. More and more I meet people, very rarely does a week go by when I don't meet some dear visitor who comes because there's a crisis going on in their home or in their life. And they say to me, Pastor, I've got so much. I remember a man in a, a Bible study that I had in Dallas, Texas when I was the director of executive ministries. He made over a million dollars a year. He said, Pastor, I have so much, but I can't make my life work. And there are so many people like that. How do I make my marriage healthy? How do I get my kids to love the living God? How do we deal? You saw it just a couple weeks ago. It was on the news in Savannah. There's a murder there just about every day now. And if someone's not murdered, three or four people are shot. And they gather all the community leaders together. How are we going to stop all this violence? The world doesn't know. And so the king heeds the advice of the queen mother, which brings us to the answer of Daniel. The answer of Daniel, beginning now in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. It must have been something else to see this grand old man come walking into the banquet hall that night. And what a difference between his lifestyle and the party crowd that was present. And that same difference ought to be between your lifestyle and the world's. Let's read it. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. He's using both flattery and he's using money to get Daniel to do what he wants him to do. He's basically saying, Daniel, I'll give you more power than you've ever had. I'll give you wealth like you've never seen before. Look at Daniel's response in verse 17. 
Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. He wants to make it very clear that he is not motivated by money. Give your playthings. Give your things to someone else. I'm not for sale. In modern vernacular, very respectfully, as we will see again in the next chapter, he's basically saying, hang it on your beak. Prestige, power, were not something that bought this man. And by the way, the the sermon that follows is really important because it tells me so much about this man. He's in the presence of of this king and all these nobles, but he's not going to change his his message. It reminds me of Peter Cartwright. He was the great Methodist circuit rider who, like Wesley, would ride on horseback up and down the coast and preach the gospel. And on one occasion, he was preaching to thousands, and someone came to him just before he walked into the pulpit. And he said, Pastor Cartwright, you need to know that the President of the United States is present today. Andrew Jackson is here, so whatever you say, please don't make the President uncomfortable. So he stepped into the pulpit And he said, I've been told that Andrew Jackson is present here in the audience, and I've been told to carefully guard my words. And he said, and I quote, I want to begin by saying that Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sins. And they say you could hear a pin drop in the room. The setting is very much the same. And after it was over, by the way, Jackson said, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip this world. I admired that man. I admired Daniel. And so what does he do? He gives this king a lesson, first in history and then in theology. First his history lesson comes. It begins in verse 18. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the people's nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. I hope you see what he's doing. He's recounting a testimony that if you were here last week had been published through the whole kingdom in every language. And he reminded him from history, from the history of his own grandfather, that God rules in the affairs of men and nations. He accuses him in verse 22, in spite of this revelation, not only did he have the revelation of creation and conscience, he had the specific revelation of God given to Nebuchadnezzar and published throughout the whole kingdom, which he was aware of, yet you, it's emphatic in Hebrew, yet you, meaning even you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. He should have known from the testimony of his grandfather that he was a proud man as well, but he ignored that lesson. And so he is ripe for judgment. I think there's some lessons we can learn as Americans 
Because we are a nation that have forgotten God. We, we say our pledge of allegiance, but we are far from being united under God. We are more united under the evil one, the God of this world, than we are under God. There's a mad pursuit for worldly pleasure. Sports have become like a God in this nation. If church interferes with sports, they'll be at sports. If they even come to church anymore. Couples live together outside of the realm of holy matrimony. Homosexuality is viewed as an alternative lifestyle. Now we're underscoring and emphasizing the transgender lifestyle. Look, we are ripe for judgment. And unless we repent, God will judge us. The handwriting is on the wall. Oh, we're Americans. Nothing like that will ever happen to us. Billy Graham said about 50 years ago in the early 60s, and he kind of quipped one day, he said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's when we weren't half as bad as we are now. So this man, he's failed the history test, but he's failed the theology test. Look at verse 23. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life and breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel had a holy hatred for this man's blasphemy. Daniel knows you don't laugh at God. He reminds him here at the end of verse 23, but the God in whose hand are your life and all your ways you have not glorified. You know, on occasion I witness to people and their response is inconceivable to me, but I understand that because I'm regenerated by God. And there was a time when I might have done the same thing. But Paul reminds those people up on the top of Mars Hill who are outright pagans, idolaters, But he appeals to general revelation because he knows they never completely lose that. And he reminds them that in the one true God, we live and move and find our existence. And I think about that today. I breathe in and out. But I'm one breath away from eternity. And God not only controls my physical breath, He controls my eternal life. And if God decides that it's over, it's over. Look at the important connective word that verse 24 begins with, then. Then the hand was sent out from him, and this inscription was written out. The hand of God's judgment always comes in response to sin. God brought this message as a result of this man's arrogance and pride, which brings us finally beyond his decadence and beyond the king's revelation to the king's condemnation. Now with that awful indictment, having ignored the lessons of God from the past and having ignored his own conscience in the presence, his conscience which told him that he ought to be giving glory to the God who is in heaven. Having ignored both, now comes a message of condemnation. We read here in verse 25. Now this is the inscription that was written out, many, many tekel upharsin. That's what was written. And quite honestly, the interpretation that follows tells me at least two things about Daniel and his preaching. 
First, the fact that he had the ability to read it tells me he was in touch with God. The Spirit of the living God was at work in his life. And we need a generation of pastors who are in touch with God, who have clean lives, who are able to study the Scripture. And the Spirit of God can illuminate its truth to their heart. We have so much flimsy preaching, so much done out of context, so much fluff in the pulpits, and so much error all across evangelicalism. But second, the fact that he read it, and he read all of it, tells me a lot about this man. He didn't tailor the message. He didn't water it down. He preached the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And there are two dimensions of this message of condemnation I want you to see. First, the king's condemnation is sure. It's certain. Just as night follows day, judgment is going to come. Look at verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. And then he gives the interpretation of the first two words. Many, many. God wrote it down twice in the wall for emphasis. Many was, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. And so twice for emphasis, because the end is so close on this man, God says, numbered, numbered. Belshazzar's days as king were coming to an end. His time to humble himself had run out. It was all over. No matter what he would try to do, judgment was going to come. He had crossed the line of spiritual rebellion that he could not cross back over. And people can do the same today. You say, oh, no, no, no. As long as there is breath, there's hope. Not always. God gives us one deathbed conversion in the Bible, the thief on the cross, so that none of us will despair. But he only gives us one, so none will presume. Jesus said the devil can come and snatch the gospel seed that they may not believe and be saved. In John 12, after he performed many miracles, because they would not believe... Jesus said they could not believe. You hear truth week after week after week, and you do nothing with it? You're building calluses over your hearts. And because they would not, they could not believe. He, God, hardened their heart. He, God, blinded their eyes. He, God, stopped their ears. God judged them because they said no to God for so long. And God was saying to this wicked king, your number is up. The hours in the glass of life have expired It's not down to days, it's down to minutes. Verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Tekel means literally weighed in Aramaic. The Hebrew Bible translates the Aramaic in this world. You have been weighed and found too light. That's good, I like that. Belshazzar has not responded to the revelation God had given him. He had not measured up to what God had shown him. He basically ignored it. Beyond ignoring it, he mocked the God of the Bible by worshiping his false gods and drinking out of the God of Israel's holy vessels. Verse 28, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. The Aramaic word Perez means divided. Now, the word on the wall reads a little bit different. It reads upharsim. And that's because the letter U is like our word and in English, and this is the third in the list. And then it has the ending S-I-N because it's in the plural. So here in verse 28, Daniel is using his interpretation to King Belshazzar using the singular form of the word. But God wrote it in the plural because he wants him to understand that he will doubly be divided by two peoples. And is this not what we studied earlier in the second chapter? 
that the kingdom would eventually be given over to the Medes and the Persians. God had said that decades before, and on this night it was going to come true. That night, God looked down from heaven, he saw their drunken idolatry, and he delivered a very clear message. Many, many, your days are numbered, and your number is up, king. You've been basically celebrating your own funeral this night. Tekel, you've been waiting, you've been found light, you've been found warning. And Parson, your kingdom is doubly divided, it's basically over, pal. That's the message. So that night of revelation becomes a night of condemnation. The king's condemnation is sure, but it is also sudden. The king's condemnation is sudden. Look now, if you will, at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Maybe this was Belshazzar's way, his, his effort to uh, somehow appease Daniel's God. But understand, he's not honoring Daniel's God, he's just honoring Daniel. He never humbles himself that night. And so we read in the final two verses, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now, by the way, God prophesied this would happen decades before, about 70 years before, to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 51, he spoke on the night that Babylon would be conquered, there'd be a drunken party. But he also spoke of something that would happen to this river that came through the city. Let me read to you Jeremiah 51. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am going to plead your case and exact full vengeance for you, and I shall dry up her broad river and make her fountain dry. Now, here's a picture of the city again. Remember, the river Euphrates comes right through it. By design, they built the city around it such that if they were sieged, they'd have plenty of water. But what Cyrus did, also called Darius the Mede, both names are true of him. There are many people double-named in Scripture. And again, even the seculars don't doubt that. At great expense and at tremendous labor, he diverted the waters of the Euphrates River. Herodotus, the famous historian who's called the father of ancient history, writes these words. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, which thus rendered the flood defenses useless and enabled the invaders to march through the riverbed to enter that night. And they came in that night, and this city that was impregnable fell on October 11th, 539 B.C. And all you could hear was not the people celebrating but the moans and the groans of the dying. Now, you may be living here today high, wide, and handsome, but your number is up. You say, my number is not up. Look, the breath that is in your lungs today could be gone tomorrow. You could be driving today and have a car accident. I hate it when I get those calls as a pastor. I remember a young girl, I had just led her to Christ. She was 16 years old, the cheerleader at a local high school. She went back and for friend day, she was inviting all her friends, but before friend day came, she was killed in that car. And some of you listening to my voice, wherever you are in the country or listening through the internet, 
Your number may be up even today. You say, I don't like preachers who talk about death. I'll make you a deal. When people stop dying, I'll stop talking about death. Belshazzar, oh, he had time for his lords. He had time for his wives. He had time for his concubines. He had time for his drunken parties. But he had no time for God, and he did find time to die, and you will too. Look, the prophet Ezekiel makes it very clear. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We just read back in verse 22, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. God had tried to get this man's attention, but he refused to repent. He knew it all. And just like some of you in this nation and in this enlightened gospel age, you know so much, but you've done nothing with it. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications as we close. One for us as a nation, one for those of you here who know Christ, and then for those listening who do not. First, I think America would do well to learn from Babylonian history. I believe there is an application here because we've become so much like ancient Babylon. America, yes, they say we are the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. That's why everybody wants to come here. But we are the number one nation in the world in promoting wickedness. And we think we are impregnable. That we are a superpower. And no one is going to touch us. That's what they thought on Babylon until October the 11th, 539 B.C. when that city fell. And history records nation after nation after nation falling. And sometimes I wonder if God won't use the United States of America as an example. I think the only reason God hasn't already met our judgment is because of the promise in Genesis 12, those who bless Israel, I will bless. And what really concerns me is leadership in this nation that no longer wants to bless Israel. The truth is, Psalm 103 teaches that God's wrath is being held back like a dam. But suddenly, in a moment, it can be loosed. And what happened in France just a few days ago could happen on a scale unimaginable if God so allows it. Secondly, there's a lesson for the individual Christian. Just as Belshazzar was not to desecrate God's holy vessels, neither are we to desecrate this holy vessel. I mean, think about what brought this man down. Was it his drunkenness? Was it the presence of all these women? Was it the gluttony? No, according to verse 23, it was using the holy vessels of God to mock the living God. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll not mock God. But you can still defame His name. And the Bible says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And some of the Christians in Corinth did that. They came to the Lord's Supper, the very supper that was a reminder of the fact that they had been bought with a price and they were drunk. I meet Christians today who get drunk. I meet people, sometimes even old people in their 60s and 70s, and they come in and they tell me they're hooked on drugs. They come into your house to use the bathroom, but they go into the 
medicine cabinet to steal all your pills. Your body is a temple of the Spirit. Paul said to the Corinthians, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number of sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. The writer of the Hebrews, in quoting Proverbs, says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Don't mock God. Don't play with God. You are inviting the discipline of God. And there are Christians who know better, who have been taught better, and they are mocking God with their worldliness, with their booze, with their immorality. Finally, I learn from the life of Belshazzar that having God's information does not guarantee the right response. This man had the testimony of his grandfather. He knew it. It was widely published, but he did not humble his heart. Having good information doesn't necessarily bring change, but any social problem we face in America, there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. We think, well, we need to educate the people on this. That means we throw more and more tax money at it, and we think that somehow education is going to bring about transformation. You know, if the youth are on drugs, they only need to learn that it's bad for you. Just say no to drugs. They need to know how to have safe sex so that they don't have sexually transmitted diseases. Let's educate them. They need to drive and drink responsibly. But the problem is not an educational one, it's a spiritual one. This guy knew much. And God would say to some of you that your days are numbered. Look, we're all born getting older because sin has entered into the world. From the moment you are born, you're marching towards the grave. Tekel, you've been weighed and found light. And if you think you can somehow balance the scales through the things you do, it will not work. And the only thing that you can put on the scale that will make you found acceptable is the precious blood of Jesus Christ and your trust in Him. Don't be like Belshazzar who did nothing with that information. Humble yourself before the God of heaven. God's hand is writing on the ha- tablet of some of our hearts today. But what are we going to do with that information? Now, our Holy Father, thank You that You said You gave us the Old Testament to the church upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that this was written for our instruction, that we might learn from both wise believers and the folly of unbelievers. God, You know where we are as a nation. Our sin is piling up into heaven. And yet so many of your people are being swept up with compromised lifestyles. May we heed the words of the Apostle Peter that judgment is to begin with the household of faith. May we stop just pointing the fingers at others and look deep into our own hearts. I pray, our Father, for our nation. I pray for the upcoming election. That you would put a man in office who is in favor of your people, Israel, not just because it's politically correct and will gain votes, 
but because he truly believes it. Help us not to be fooled. I pray today for someone who is here and you've been trying to get their attention. They may be listening on some radio station or through the internet or they're on our other campus. Oh God, help them to see that today is the day of salvation. That your spirit will not always strive with men. But thank you that salvation is not something earned, but something humbly received. That you can save anyone, even a Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the precious blood you spilt when in our place on that cross you bore all of the wrath our sin deserved. You proved to the world that you were able to do it, that you are the sinless, eternal God when your life was brought out of the grave. Help someone today to call upon you and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, help us as parents. Help us as grandparents to have the wisdom to direct our families out of a life of integrity. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.